Welcome to the Art and Science of Joy podcast. This podcast is all about inspiring people to live more joyfully. So if you're seeking a bit more joy in your own life or seeking to bring some more joy to the lives of others, then this podcast could well be for you. And in the second series of the podcast, we're focusing on joy superpowers, special powers each and every one of us can cultivate and use in our own lives. I'm Andrew Cannon, and I have the honor to be your host. In each episode, I'll be inviting our guests to share their words of wisdom on a specific joy superpower, whether that's in relation to personal growth, genuine belonging, positive impact, or simply having fun. So welcome to episode eight of the Joy Superpower series. And today I'm going to be talking with Jenny Boymar, Noiri Mosley, and Victor Purton. And together we're going to be exploring the Joy Superpower of Optimism. But before we get going, just a few words to introduce our guests to you. Jenny has spent her whole career in the education sector, teaching, training, consulting. Jenny is passionate about spreading optimism near and far. And a fun fact about Jenny is that in her previous role, she was involved in training cleaning industry personnel to discover illegal meth labs in Australia, believe it or not. And, and welcome, welcome, Jenny. And... Jenny met Nori Mosley in 2019 and Educate to Elevate was born in order to bring innovative online approaches to learning and to workplaces. So welcome, Nori. And Noreen has followed a colorful career path, having worked in the insurance and disability, electronics, photographic wall art and slot car racing events sectors across the globe. And a fun fact about Noreen is she plays the Irish harp and also participated in full contact women's rugby while living in Ireland. So be careful with <laughs> Noreen. And spreading optimism has now become a part of a passion of Noreen's. And when she and Jenny met Victor Purton, the three of them decided mm -hmm. during COVID to create a learning project on optimism. And the Habits of Optimism course was created and the not-for-profit Project Optimism was born in December 2020. Hello, Victor, our final guest on the show today. Victor, Good to see you, Andrew, and uh, you fill me full of joy just with that beautiful smile. There you go. Joy and optimism, <laughs> what a great combination. Uh, Victor has worked in law, politics, public policy, including 18 years in Parliament. We're forgiven for that. And he's working as has worked as a commissioner on the Americas and a senior advisor to the G20 presidency. Victor is chief optimism officer for the Centre of Optimism, which was founded on the basis of the research of the Australian Leadership Project. And today's Victor's work centers on asking people the question, what makes you optimistic? And a fun fact, Victor's enjoyed two audience with the Dalai Lama, one last week online. So, Fantastic stuff and welcome Jenny, Noreen and Victor to the show. So wonderful to have you today. So I'd like to kick off with you, Victor, I think, and ask about your conversation with the Dalai Lama. I'm sure the audience is just as curious as I am to hear a little more about that. Uh, well, it was um, a, a relatively small audience and um, he shows himself to be very adept on uh, Zoom and um, modern communications and of course the favorite quote that jenny has on optimism is the dalai lama's quote uh in which he said choose optimism it feels better right. and last week it was interesting there was a, an international group of people in the audience as you can imagine and it was at eight o'clock in the morning indian time so for me it was fine it was lunchtime i was wide awake and alert but for the europeans it was getting up at 3 30 in the morning and uh, one of the ladies um, sort of asked this quite sour question um, mm. on, you know, it, teenagers suffering through COVID and how can we look after our teenagers and, you know, this notion that teenagers are going to be much worse off as a result of COVID. And yeah. the Dalai Lama just looked at her and smiled and said, the most important thing for teenagers is optimism. Pessimism kills. And the most important duty for a parent and a grandparent is to instill hope and optimism in their mm. teenagers through this pandemic. So he's consistent, mm. you know, this belief that, that you know, no matter what troubles, and of course he talks about his own troubles, having to leave his country, the, the massacres of Tibetans and the like. But he says, you know, to be optimistic is to continue 
in the face of difficulty, knowing that good things will happen and that things will work out in the end. And, of course, when you live um, through several incarnations, you know things work out in the end. They do indeed. We all indeed. If we tap into that knowledge, I'm sure we would all be much more optimistic. And, and it's fantastic. And it's 30 years, 30 years since I, I last shared a panel with him, and that was, mm. of course, just after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, um, you know, which preceded the collapse of the Soviet Union right. and the freeing up of hundreds of millions of people and, in fact, billions of people from the fear of nuclear holocaust. Hard to believe that's 30 years ago. That's for sure. That's for sure. And, and you say optimism is a choice. So, and your key question, obviously, for Project Optimism is to ask people what makes you optimistic. And obviously, I'd love to take this opportunity to turn the tables on you guys and ask mm -hmm. each of you what makes you optimistic. So, Noreen, whether you want to start, perhaps. Oh, yeah. You know, as, as I was saying um, to Victor and Jenny, each time we, we do these sessions and we ask ourselves, we ask everyone what makes them optimistic. And it changes and that's okay because different things make you optimistic so, so long as you're looking at things in an optimistic way. So, you know, I'm going to answer honestly and say today, I think um, kind of back to the discussion you and Victor were just having around you know, you know that in time and with history, things do work out in the end. And I guess I just really believe what makes me optimistic, I think, at the moment is that I know this is getting tougher and tougher for some people. It's getting tougher for us here. We're in our sixth lockdown here in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I really do believe that things will be OK. We'll work it out. We'll get there. It's just a matter of time. Got to give time time. So I'm optimistic that we will, as history has proven time and time again, that we will work it out. Very good. Thank you, Jenny. How about you? Sorry, Noreen. How about you, Jenny? Oh, so many things. Um, I, I think, I think, you know, I believe that people are good. And I think, you know, I mean, you know, you don't want to kind of go like, you know, things, awful things don't happen because awful things do happen. But I actually think just the human spirit makes me really optimistic. You know, this crazy world that we're living in and there's more conversation about positive impact than there's ever been before. There's more conversation about climate change and climate action and, you know, really how can we make an impact? And you just see not-for-profits spurting up everywhere, mm -hmm. social enterprises everywhere, and people are really looking at how rather than my business being a business, we all need to make money. Like there's no doubt about it. Even not-for-profits need to make money, otherwise they can't do good. But there's a real kind of shift in thinking about, well, how can I make money and also kind of really kind of bring my passion to life and make the world a better place as I'm doing it? And that makes me really optimistic because I think I'm excited for the next generations to get a world where this is actually normal for them. Like I see my 13-year-old who just thinks like this and that's how they think. And I, I just think that's really exciting. That's beautiful. That collaboration over competition, that switch yeah. from just profit to the triple bottom line of profit, people, purpose. Um, so optimistic. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jenny, for sharing that. Victor, what's your view? What makes you optimistic today? Well, today, my optimism doesn't change. So, oh, so okay. my view is optimism is consistent. And um, it's probably, uh, you know, uh, I've written an essay on it. For me, it's almost, it's intergenerational. It's the march of history. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my grandfather um, was executed by the KGB. Um, his wife, my grandmother, was sent to the Gulag for 12 years. Mm -hmm. But in 1987, when the freedom movement emerged, there she was on a walking frame participating in the million hands across the Baltic saying, I will outlive communism. And she did. You know, and my mother, you know, a refugee from the age of 12, um, widowed when I was a, a young kid, so a refugee in a strange land, working three jobs. Mm -hmm. She died last October at the age of 92, still teaching until four months before she died and full of optimism. And then for me in my life, you know, whether it's politics or the like, you know, you can take any punch, you can take any name calling, but persist, be nice, smile at people respond in a respectful way and things will proceed. Things will go okay. So for me, 
It's the march of history. And of course, the, the example set by my ancestors. And that is so wonderful to have that connection through, through the family and to see that experience play out um, in your own life, I think is so empowering. Um, and Andrew, what makes you optimistic? Ah, very good question. I thought you might ask that somehow. I think the, the youth makes me extremely optimistic um, when I see my own children, when I see her friends and my son's friends, and I see their attitude towards this new way of thinking. I think a bit like Jenny mentioned, this collaboration um, makes me very optimistic. And I think I see technology makes me optimistic. I think it's a wonderful gift that we have to be able to achieve so much, to achieve change at a speed that we, our ancestors could never have dreamt of making that change. And I see technology as neutral, but we have the possibility to use it for good, obviously, as well as for not so good things. Um, so I see it as a, as a positive force for us. And the same with money. You know, I see also money as a, as a neutral thing, and I see a shift towards more ethical investing, a shift towards this focus on more than just making money. And that makes me optimistic. I think if we can combine the power of technology and the power of money for good with our spirit and our, the right mm -hmm. attitude, I think we can achieve wonderful things still in the future. So Brilliant. No, spot on. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, you know, I've got loads of friends and some of my friends, uh, they, they say they are happy pessimists. They, you know, they enjoy seeing things through the glass being half empty perspective. So I wonder, Victor, if you could sort of share with us a little bit on your views on optimism, over-optimism, realism, and pessimism. Sure. And what the Centre for Optimism Project Optimism fosters um, is realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. So my centre comes out of the Australian Leadership Project, and I was bewildered by the level of negativity around communication on leadership, not just in Australia, but across the Western world. Mm. And in the end, my eureka moment came at the Global Integrity Summit in 2017. There's actually not much wrong with the leadership. If you look at the march of human progress, of human health, um, of um, more efficient agriculture, of mm. defeating global starvation, you know, things are obviously going well. Yeah. And so... <sighs> Sorry, I've just, um, so if we look at, at realism and optimism, they go hand in hand. And um, Dominic Barton, who's the former head of McKinsey, said to me, look, you know, 2020's leadership is all about realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. And every great leader I've ever met is so, but it's not the big man or woman making the speech from the front of the stage. It's the person who can unlock the optimism in the team from the youngest worker to the most experienced worker. Um, so it's about unlocking things. So, um, and in fact, the modern science says that optimism and pessimism actually come from different parts of the brain. So, you know, there are people who are worried optimists, you know, there are anxious warriors, there are passionate optimists. So there's, the, the source of optimism, in fact, comes from different places. When I've done the interviews in India, it's almost invariably God or family. You know, we talk to people in Europe, you know, it's the march of science, it's faith in humanity. So it can come from different sources. But taking that distinction, that the glass half full, the glass half empty, uh, we had a wonderful episode of our Optimism Cafe conversations and we were interviewing a, an author and I said, what makes you optimistic? And he started laughing. And he said, oh, God, my wife, I told her what I was doing this morning. She said, They've got the wrong man. You're the glass half empty man. And of course, we all laughed and I didn't miss a beat. And then about 20 minutes into the conversation, he suddenly said, well, I don't, I can't put it into words, but what you guys have got is just right. Mm. It's what the times need. So um, we, we foster realistic and infectiously optimistic leadership. Um, in some senses, you know, that's derived from a mystic, 700 years ago, Mother Julian of Norwich, who said, all shall be well, all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. Mm. But it's different from positive thinking. Mm. 
right. you know, that notion that there's a, a silver lining in every dark cloud, mm. that there's an opportunity in every disaster. You know, bad things happen to people. You know, I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died through COVID. Um, you know, people have, you know, 100 million people died last year uh, in the last century, mm. you know, through war and, and, and vicious dictatorial governments. And so, you know, good things don't always come out of the bad. And, and so that's the weakness in positive thinking, mm. that you can't accept that there is grief. Yeah. You know, there are times to step back and say that's really wrong and we've got to do something about it or that's really wrong and I actually can't do anything about it. Mm. You know, I can't go to Eritrea and stop the war between the Ethiopians and the Eritreans. No, I can help raise money for the victims. I can do mm. other things. So in our view, you know, the, the strength of optimism is this understanding you know, that tough stuff happens. Mm. Uh, but optimism gives you the persistence and the resilience. And so when you think of strategy, strategy is innately optimistic. When you think of innovation, it's optimistic. And most importantly, the conversations on resilience often miss out on the crucial ingredient, which is if you are resilient, if you persist, if you are going to work your way through disaster or tragedy, You've got to believe there's a better future mm. and you can't be resilient unless you're optimistic. So now I've heard all sorts of variations. I was door knocking a little country town the other, last week or this week and, and this man smart, looked at me and said, I'm a pessimist and gave me a four-minute exposition on the values of pessimism and then he started laughing mm. and he said, you couldn't live in a country town if you weren't an optimist. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's some sort of comfort to that pessimism in, in terms of there's a feeling that you don't have to take responsibility, perhaps that, you know, as you say, the world is going to the dogs and woe is me. And that, that becomes a comfort for some people in, in many ways. I'd like to change the conversation slightly and bring Jenny in. And I'd like to talk a little bit about some research we undug by a pioneer in positive psychology called Martin Seligman, who wrote a book called Learned Optimism, How to Change Your Mind and Your Life. And he thinks that optimism is a state of mind that can be cultivated and learned, pretty much like Victor um, was alluding to there. But how does one start that learning process of being an optimist? What's the very first steps to take on the journey? Well, I mean, I think this is really a very exciting conversation. Um, you know, we're very focused on this whole concept that optimism can be learned. Mm. And I think that's really exciting. You know, as Victor said earlier, the Dalai Lama said, choose optimism. It feels better. So, number one, it can be learned. And number two, it's a choice. Right. So it's something that people choose to do. I think sometimes when you engage in, uh, let's call them habits of an optimist, um, sometimes you just become one. So sometimes you don't choose it, but you can choose it and you certainly can learn it. And I think it's really interesting because if you just take us as an example of people, um, you know, Victor and I are very much natural optimists. So we just are. We were born that way. We just That's just the way we naturally think. Noreen, however, beautiful soul, is not a natural optimist. She's actually a learnt optimist. So she, if you meet her and you talk to her and you engage with her, you would say she was an optimist because she's very optimistic for everyone else and about everyone else, mm -hmm. but she's not very optimistic for herself. And she's actually learnt optimism through our journey, which has been amazing. So if we go back to the question of how do you actually learn optimism, there are so many things, and this is the cool part, is that everyone's different and everyone resonates with different things. So number one, you know, at the core of everything we do is asking yourself the question, what makes me optimistic? Yeah. So when you ask yourself that question and you ask others that question, there's nowhere you can go apart from to a positive place. Like if someone says to you, Andrew, what makes you optimistic? You're not going to start thinking, well, you know, it's so dark and dreary. Like you automatically it takes your brain somewhere really, really mm. positive. So that's number one. So if you start actually, and sometimes for some people it's hard to look within themselves. Yeah. But if it's a choice, 
and you believe that you can learn it, you can actually choose to go out and ask other people. Mm. It lifts you just as much to ask others as it does to ask yourself. Another one which is really, really simple is actually to consider the language you use. So rather than going out and saying to people, hi, how are you? And then they say back, oh, not bad. You know, like that kind of empty conversation. (laughs) You know, you can ask people, what's the best thing that's happened to you today? And it's as impactful for them as it is for you, which is really cool. Mm. And then it has this cool ripple. You just never know where that ripple might end. But really on a very simple level, it's smiling at people, smiling at someone and and they smile back. Yeah. It's about laughing and finding opportunities to laugh. It's, you know, like we've all got friends that we share silly jokes with. Mm. So finding more of them. For me, I think one of the most impactful things is surrounding yourself with optimists. Yep. So you know, it's about it's about looking at who you're surrounded with. And sometimes it's about a choice of, you know, bringing kind of levelling up the optimists in your life. And it's not all, it's not about rosy, rosy, you know, rainbows and butterflies. That's not what it is. It's not about that. It's just about people who are who have the mindset that somehow things are going to work out. Yeah. So it's surrounding yourself with people who actually motivate you and help you feel like things are going to work out for you and if you hang around with them, things will work out for you even better, you know. So it's it's about choosing that. And it might be mm-hmm. people with common interests. It might be, you know, there's so many ways that you can find other people who share commonality. So it's, re- it's really quite simple. And there's, you know, things like, you know, limiting your news intake, which, you know, we'll talk about a bit later. But there's so many different things that you can do. So you mm-hmm. jump on and look at the 14 habits and choose what resonates with you and choose a few to do just start doing on a regular basis Mm. and for some people it's about writing affirmations for some people it's about looking at their language for some you know but just don't be hard on yourself just give yourself an opportunity just to embrace it and be so yeah I think that's that's it that covers (laughs) it that covers it pretty much Jenny and I can see your passion for this and I must admit looking at the beautiful dragonfly behind you that that these things do help right even if they're not the most important I just feel happy looking at that beautiful colors um, behind you so that's wonderful and I think the the question or the, the fact that you raised the there's this issue of nature and nurture and the issue of understanding first your nature and we're going to talk a bit more about the research that you've been doing and, and you've done on the different types of optimists. And I see that's a great place to start. If people can understand whether they're a natural optimist or a, a not so natural optimist, that will help them perhaps see their own path forward and to understand why they're not succeeding when they're trying to do certain change, certain habits, whereas somebody else changes, you know, just through affirmations and somebody finds affirmations don't work whatsoever for me. You know, I just can't do anything with that. I need to go out and ask people what makes them optimistic. And and so you could find through understanding first yourself and using your toolbox to then go out and find the things that work for you. And I think I loved what you said about not beating yourself up, about not doing this perfectly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about the movement. It's about being a bit more optimistic today than you were yesterday. And you also mentioned the media thing, which is great because that's a lovely segue into bringing Noreen into the conversation to talk about media a little bit. And my own analysis of the media, which I only do now and again because it's very depressing to do, but when I look at headlines, it basically tells me that out of every 10 headlines, there's approximately seven negativity or fear-based headlines. Mm -hmm. There's probably two um neutral ones and and one positive one pops up um now and again out of that that list and so the question really i think i'd like to ask you you know nor how does one maintain an optimist mindset in this world full of negativity where bad events have been pushed to us you know on a daily basis through the media through social media it's not easy so how do you do it yeah, well, I think awareness, knowledge, I mean, all these sorts of things we're talking about, the more we talk about it, the more people will think, oh, my God, maybe I'm getting a lot of negative messages. Oh, my God, maybe the world isn't so bad. Um, Victor's reading an amazing book at the moment called Factfulness. Is that right, Victor? Yeah. yeah but and, I've, I've heard um, the Swedish, Rosling. Mm, mm. 
And, you know, really, uh, really all things that we're hearing in the media, it's, you know, a lot of stuff isn't actually happening to the extent that we think it is. It's only happening to the extent that we think it is because we're hearing it so much. Mm. Therefore, it may not be happening like that at all. Um, and I think, um, I think we need to, you know, discuss these points. We need to actually say, listen, let's just think about what we're actually hearing and question it and challenge it. That's the first thing. The other thing is, I think, look, we can control everything in our lives. We just turn down the radio. You know, we can we can decide to discerningly listen to the news on our own terms. We can decide what we want to listen to and when. I mean, for me, for example, I just now in the morning, I don't listen to the first thing, the news. I actually just kind of get up and do something else. And then I'll turn on one or two channels, get a sense of it all. You know, anything big happening in the world, <laughs> I find that out early and then get on with my day. Mm. get on with my day and then in the evening I'll kind of check maybe another news channel or I might look up something online and just you know just kind of keep myself um, briefed and aware of the world mm. but that's it you know so I think you can actually control control that um, and some of the actual news is actually kind of good you know but you got to go looking for it but it's it's good if you go looking for it some very funny memes around COVID at the moment that are making us all laugh because that's kind of important to have a little bit of black humor in there and Victor and I were laughing at something yesterday something we saw you know it's like it's it's funny you know it's funny and you have to laugh sometimes when things aren't aren't kind of great and so there is some good news out there go looking for it and then the last thing I'd say is and it's one of our habits as well and that is be your own news channel Go share your own stories of hope and optimism. Right. You know, share good good news. Share good news. You know, right. be your own news channel. So there's lots of ways that you can actually like conquer this media thing that's beating down on us. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of ways we can do it. You know, it's okay. It won't it won't beat us. You know, if we all kind of inform ourselves, get together, you know, educate. Um, you know regulate ourselves around what's coming into us mm. and then share good stuff well that's maybe a solution in itself that is a great solution so to to realize what you can control and what you can't control because always victor said about you know Eritrea and you can't necessarily control what's happening there but you can control how much you let that influence you and your mm. your mindset you have that control and you have that wonderful ability to go out and share your positivity your optimism um, your own stories, which I think is part of the Project Optimism, which I really love. Victor, yeah. I saw you waving your hands up there as I was mentioning my statistics. So <laughs> come on. Was oh, I being optimistic? I've been overly optimistic on my numbers. <laughs> I don't know. Stephen Pinker, the um, professor of psychology at, at um, Harvard, the, the analysis is it's nine out of ten. Mm. Um, and I had an editor of our government um, channel here um, go through a week's news stories. It was nine out of ten. So it's quite changed. In the 1970s, it was 50-50. Yeah. You know, in those days, local TV channels needed to get tape, and there just wasn't enough bad news stories in any particular city or country or the like. Uh, now, of course, they can buy bad news from anywhere. Mm. Um, and and it's this. And also, journalists these days are trained to do negative clickbait. So it's that. You know the the mammalian instinct to look at something that's dangerous. Mm. So it's 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 this fear mongering, and and it's constant fear mongering um, that has come to dominate because journalists are not trained to do sexy positive headlines, mm. right? right? Although you know, so obviously some women's magazines and and the like you know do better at that than others. Yeah. But essentially, the, the contemporary training of a journalist is extremely negative. Mm. And Rosling in his book, Backfortus, actually puts this quite generously. He says it's an ignorance. You know, the other day, a couple of our local TV journos were tweeting to each other and she said, oh, I went and covered a positive story today. God, it must be the first time in weeks. Mm. So if you're constantly following crime or conflict or dissension, you don't have time to, to smell the flowers. Yeah, that's your frame of reference, right? That's what they get as their, their normal, yeah. and that's what they impose upon other people. And I think, you know, a lot of people think that COVID is in many ways, you know, the start of this negativity, this fear. Um, my own research takes it all the way back to 9-11, and that mm. being a moment where the level of fear within society, this ability to say things can happen which are unbelievable and which I have no control over 
was so massive to the psychology of the individual and the society that since then people have been filled with fear um, in terms of not only the media, but also that general feeling that they've had. So anybody born in this century really has known nothing else apart from an atmosphere of fear. And, and that obviously has a huge impact on where they are today and why this project optimism is so much needed today more than ever. So I'd like to sort of talk on that a little bit and ask you maybe, Jenny, to tell us more about project optimism, where you are today, um, what are your aspirations and your plans for the future? And everybody, please chime in on this one because you're all leaders in this. So let Jenny start and then everybody else tell us where are you, where are you going? Wow, it's a big question. <laughs> We've got lots of dreams and lots of aspirations. I mean, our, our, I mean, our big one, our mission is to spread optimism. Mm. So there are so many ways to do that. I suppose, you know, at the core, we understand as leaders that we can't do it alone. So the world needs optimism. Everyone needs optimism. We believe that wearing an optimism, an optimistic lens on life is really, really beneficial. And it's, you know, amazing world we live in. There's so much research out there. It's not only like, you know, I always thought before I met Victor, I always, as a bit ignorant, I always thought that, you know, optimism was just a really positive thing. And I always knew I was optimistic, but I just never thought beyond that really. But there's so many health benefits. There's, you know, to do with heart health and longevity and like the list goes on. It's unbelievable. So, the thing is, it's not just about, you know, I, you know, I love choose optimism. It feels better. It's not mm. just that it feels better in the moment. It actually is really good for you from a health perspective. Mm. And really, we're a health organization, so we're for we're for people who need um, some reminders and some support to remind them. Of what are the things that make them feel good? So we're we're not a mental health organization. We're certainly not a, a solving mental illness organization. We're for people who are pre right. pre that phase. And, you know, live the normal ups and downs of normal life and sometimes forget what those things are. You know, they get in a bit of a ditch and they forget those things that actually make them feel good. And it's the const- it's the reminders, it's the pulling them out of that, it's adopting these habits so that tomorrow they can feel better than they do today. So it's quite an immediate thing yep. and it's a long-term thing. But if you can catch people and, you know, I mean, like our mental health system, like they can't cope, they can't cope. And why wait till you get so bad that you can't cope either? You know, we, we want to help people today so that they can start tomorrow so that, you know, it's really practical. So that's really what we're all about. And so we do that in lots of different ways. Maybe I'll let Noreen talk about how we do that. Great. Oh, gosh, Jenny, I was just listening to you there and enjoying it. <laughs> um, well, you know... <laughs> Look, we help in lots of ways and we're learning, I suppose, on a you know daily, weekly basis how, how much else we can do and how much other work we can actually do by the work that we're doing to date, you know. Um, so obviously the habits of an optimist is is our sort of our, our free resource. It's our, it's our gift to the world during this time and beyond. And it's 45 minutes. Take 45 minutes to do or it can take 45 years, depending if you want to read all the resources. Every habit has a ton of TED Talks and archived um, podcasts and articles um, so you can really immerse yourself in in these habits and uh, as, as Jenny said earlier you know you can pick and choose them you don't have to do them all at once mm. you know immerse one try another that kind of thing so that's sort of the just take it take it take it and use it um, we also do our our optimistic sessions so we actually, at the moment, we're running hours of optimism for different community groups and organizations that need an hour of optimism um, so that's really good, and that's and that's open to everyone. They can jump online. It's really easy. Victor makes them laugh with the laugh habit, and we all laugh at Victor's laugh, and it's great. You know, that's the highlight of my day. You know, and we're actually going to have a laugh session in in, in an hour from now, and I'm just dying for Victor to laugh. That's anyway, um, but you know, those sorts of sessions, they're 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 really good, and they're often the starting point for people to actually jump into the whole world of exploring more and more optimism. So that's great. And then we actually work with corporates because, you know, if you kind of help at the top, 
it filters down. And we, we work with sort of leaders. We want to create infectious, optimistic leaders because that's what the world needs now more than yeah. ever. Um, and in doing that in a corporate space, we can actually really you know, extend our reach um, on, on spreading optimism um, even more exponentially. So um, they're the kind of ways to date that we've been sort of um, um, spreading optimism, but there's always... There's always more, always more. There's always more. And just maybe three examples. So this week I've got, um, you know, we've got our laughter workshop today, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, we've got a world expert on laughter. Um, you know, I've been asked to uh, return to the cardiology division of our largest private health system um, because the doctors and the professionals need more optimism for themselves and also the tools for their patients. So it's interesting that they recognise it. And we've even done this work in prison, Andrew. Mm. You know, and, and one funny incident that happened to me, this, this very tall um, man who, who is a murderer. And uh, he'd come to my session and I said, why did you come? And he said, well, the guy in the cell next to me came to your last session. He now meditates once a day. Mm. He keeps a gratitude journal and he reads me one page of your book every day. And he looked down <coughs> at me from a height of about six foot seven and said, and he said, if I'd come to your session, you'd give me a copy of your book. All right. so of course, you can imagine I immediately passed him a copy of the book. But, but you see, the interventions we do are sometimes quite simple. You know, uh, this guy's doing a five-minute meditation every day. Mm. And it so influenced the guy in the cell next to him right. that he wanted to take the optimism path too. It is infectious. It is infectious. And I love the fact that you're taking this into the workplace and this will be a subject for a whole new podcast episode probably with you guys about optimism and leadership and how we can bring that into the workplace, not just for senior management, but what for I think is the clue to this whole thing, which is middle management. Yeah. That it's, it's okay for the leaders to be optimistic, but if they cannot make their, their sort of middle line troops build that, into something tangible for the whole company, then it sort of just falls down as that was another wonderful annual speech or corporate PowerPoint deck, and it doesn't live in the organization. So the importance of middle management and making sure that it gets embedded into daily practice is, is hugely important. So let's save that for another, another time. And I want to bring Victor in to talk a bit more about research and in a couple of ways. So first of all, I'll point a bit of research from Ipsos that we found, which polled young people in 15 countries on, yeah. on optimism mm. about the future. And it found that in developing countries, more than nine out of 10 young people were optimistic about the future. Whereas if you looked at developed countries, so-called developed countries like Sweden and France, that number falls to less than seven out of 10. So where do you think this difference stems from? Why would people in developing countries, especially young people, be more optimistic than their cohort, their peers in so-called developed countries? Well, I won't get into a definitional debate with you because there's actually really good evidence that says people get more optimistic as they get older. Right. So, yeah. so the researchers may be confusing the positivity of the young rather than optimism. So the 60-year-old or the 70-year-old's gone through the failed romances, the, the lost jobs, the failed exams, and knows that life goes on. You know, the young person is often, you know, awaiting the first broken heart. But take, let, setting that aside and assuming that the research is accurate, mm. even with the, in those countries, it differs dramatically. So in Australia, for instance, there's very good research on refugee and migrant children. Mm. And, and refugee and migrant children are 90% optimistic and 87% optimistic that they will have a good job mm. and a good family in Australia. It's 65% of Australian-born kids. Yeah. So that backs um, up the United finding, right? That backs it up to say that... Yeah. That and, and in the United States... Um, what, what do you think is the most optimistic ethnic sector, you know, by colour or, or birth? It's the black community. Mm. And, and the research from Brookings says it's because they have more spirituality still, mm. that, that they go to church and they sing, that they've got big family groups that still hang out together. Right. And, and so if you look at North African optimism, um, if you look at Indian optimism, mm. if you look at the like, there's still a strong foundation of spirituality, but yep. there's also the need to get ahead. Mm. 
So, you know, if you haven't had to struggle, so your average Swedish kid or your average Australian kid, they have grown up in a system that gives them free education, the best education in the world in beautiful surroundings. They're not in a dirt hut, mm. you know, with a blackboard. And, and if you look at the success of that, I mean, we could talk, this is actually a program on its own for two mm. hours. Um, but if you actually have a look at Silicon Valley in the United States, nearly one third of the successful CEOs and CIOs are born in India. And those rags to riches stories of the, of the kid that started out in a dirt floored hut, but got a scholarship mm. to MIT or a scholarship to Harvard. So part of it is the struggle, you know, the competition, mm. the not having to, to take things for granted. And the other thing we go back to the question you asked of Noreen, it's the excession, excessive consumption of negative news. Mm. So, so neither look at climate change, yeah, in the way that a lot of young people looked at the nuclear threat in the 1970s, as an existential threat. Yeah. Or you can actually say, you know, we've got the technology, we've got the capacity, mm. we've got to make some sacrifices. We're not going to be able to eat as much meat. Right. You know, we're going to have to eat more vegetables. You know, we're not going to be able to drive Maseratis. We're going to have to drive, you know, mm. slut. Well, in fact, you might be able to drive an EV Maserati. But, you know, the, the, the threat to Western countries is that you actually need to reduce your consumption Mm. so that the others can come up. So it, 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 there's some fascinating mm. cultural stuff around this, but France and the like have always been relatively pessimistic. For me, the, the, the scarier research is a country like Australia, where 20 years ago, and you pointed to 2001, mm. Australia and New Zealand were amongst the most optimistic countries on any measure. Today, in 2021, they are down around German-Russian levels. Mm. And what has also happened at the same time is that there's been a doubling in medicated anxiety and depression in this country. Right. So the two things have run together, more, pessimi more pessimism, less optimism, and a dramatic increase in, in medicalization of anxiety and depression. And, and you see it every time now, almost the glorification of people with mental illness or depression. Mm -hmm. um, as if that's that's the appropriate place to be, and it's not. I mean, we have to have sympathy. We have to, you know, help people through. But most people actually need a dose of optimism. Yeah, but I think that's a lot of fascinating insights, Victor, from from that. And I think one of the things I pick out is this. And I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings now, and I'm thinking of Schmeagel and and my precious. Um, and holding on to it. So once you've got something which you think is of value, then your fear and takes over that you might actually lose this. So, you know, the Swedish kids who have everything, um, have the iPhone at the age of seven and so on, you know, that becomes a natural fear, a, a pessimism for the future, because you might lose what you've got, that you can't see anything you can really get above what you have and the need to take on leadership. So, mm. so the adulation of someone who says to the world leadership, you've effed us, right? right. Now, you know, there's this complete derogation. You know, we say, and, and whenever we run an event, we get people to stand up and shout out, the leader looks like the person in my mirror. Mm. And we get them to look into the eyes of another person and say, the leader looks like the person in your mirror. And we encourage people to graffiti mirrors with red lipstick or texture with the leader looks like the person in your mirror. Mm. So this notion that everything is someone else's fault, you know, that, that, that the country's not going well because of the political leadership takes away the responsibility. I remember going to a school, you know, where it was in the middle of the suburbs and every house I drove past was a double-storey house with not that many trees yet because of a new estate and mm. huge air conditioning units because Australia gets pretty hot in summer. And these kids were telling me how the government needed to do more about climate change. And I looked at them and I said, all right, well, I've just driven through these suburbs that you all live in, mm. and most of your gardens are pretty new. How many of you have planted a tree in the last year? One kid in, 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 a, in mm. the assembly of 120 kids. So, 
a lot of it is we've got to return that notion of personal responsibility, you know, like the Dalai Lama says. You know, we've got to give the kids hope and optimism by getting the kids to actually do something rather than sit back, as you say, on their iPhones and doom scroll. Right, and expect somebody else to do it. <laughs> um, I'm going to continue with you, Victor, because we're on this subject of, of optimism. And, and what I'd like to bring out, obviously, is something called optimism bias at this side. And we looked at some work done by a neuroscientist called Tali Sharot, um, who wrote a book called Optimism Bias, the Tour of Irrationally Positive Brain, and the tendency that humans have to overestimate the likelihood of experiencing good events in their life and underestimating the likelihood of experiencing bad events. And he claims that 80% of people have this optimism bias. What are your thoughts on this? He's partly right, but he's mostly wrong. There you go. <laughs> uh, the, the, best, the best work says that there's a huge negativity bias. And you talked about it, Andrew. Yeah. You know, if, if we're walking past a television or a radio and there's a tower collapsing and, you know, people, I remember my ex-wife, you know, spent hours and hours, you know, watching the aftermath of 9-11, you know. Mm. And, and so, and in fact, you see it with, with television. You know, um, an earthquake, a tidal wave, uh, they keep replaying it. They replay it on an annual basis. Mm. You know, I have a wonderful friend, Judy Rogers, who set up Images and Voices of Hope because the, the reality is with any earthquake or hurricane or the like, a year later that community will have re started to rebuild mm. with new technology and better architecture and better architecture um, to withstand disaster. And if you go to um, even a community, those American communities that have suffered those terrible mm. school shootings, the community is actually closer together five years later because they've had to care for each other. So, so mm. th there is a difference between the way people regard their own prospects and community prospects. So there is a huge negativity bias towards the future of the country. Mm. There is a negativity bias towards community. There may be more of an optimism bias towards people and their children. Mm. And so life. Yeah. both, yeah, both <laughs> run together, mm. but the evidence is that it's diminishing. And, and if we, as I said, I'm not going to repeat myself. Yeah. The news channels know that bad news gets attention easier than good news. Mm. And, and if, if we have a look, for instance, at the work of the American military and Harvard University on longevity, um, when they studied uh, longevity, they started the study expecting longevity to owe a lot to wealth, income, ge geography, and genetics. Mm. They were absolutely confounded to find that optimism was the key trait that predicted longevity. Mm. And the American Heart Association then went ahead and did some really good research on it, which has been followed up by Monash University in Australia, that for every mortality, cancer, heart disease and the like, optimism is the key. Yeah. Now, not everyone, we come back to your question, you know, can you turn the, the great pessimist into mm. an optimist? Um, often it's a health intervention. Yeah. So in prison, I was with a notorious gang leader who was in there with a, a long sentence, and he shared a story with the other prisoners that he'd actually had cancer. Mm. And his ethnicity was such that in hospital, there were 100 people to come and say goodbye to their uncle figure, their grandfather yeah. figure. And mm. the surgeon said to him, I'm going to do my best, but the only thing that will pull you through is personal optimism. And he had the operation and he pulled through. I don't know how he then ended up in prison. But the prisoner next to him had arms the size of your waist, you know, tattoos. He was actually driven to tears by that. So, so optimism, you know, if, if, if Sharp's right, optimism is a huge plus for anyone who can harness it mm. for their health. You know, they might exercise more. They might sleep better. Um, they might find themselves an optimistic spouse, you know, which helps again. Um, but there tends to be quite a negativity towards society as a whole and to others. So 
But the, the work, for instance, that Berkeley's um, centres and others have done, they see the greater danger as being the pessimism mm. instinct. And, and the American Heart Association put it very well. It, it's not optimism that makes you live longer. It's the other state. So anxiety, depression, pessimism mm. gives you higher blood pressure at night, literally hardens the arteries, damages the kidneys, does all sorts of stuff. So an optimism bias, if it exists in a human being, ought to be encouraged and cultivated. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I'm listening to you and, and what I read, obviously, I think the, the distinctions between optimism and over-optimism and yeah. when that switches mm. from what you would call optimism, which is, in a way, optimistic realism as the foundation of your, your general state of being, when that goes to the level of being over-optimistic without understanding, without doing the work necessary, without being conscious, then I think, you know, you can have this bias and this issue. So, oh, yeah. and, and to be optimistic and not to take action is as bad as being a pessimist. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, action at the end of the day, that movement that we talked about earlier. So it's... And the Monash, know, I'll just give you, I'll just, you, you are so right, Andrew. The Monash study actually shows that unrealistic optimism can be as damaging as pessimism to your health. Yeah. So that constant disappointment, you have the anxiety, the depression, right. you can't sleep properly. So you've nailed it, Andrew. You've, you've actually hit the nail on the head. Well, thank you for that compliment. I'm not sure I got really deserve it, but at least you opened up my thoughts. So that's all I can do at this side of the table. I think, you know, it, it's when we talk about joy, and I see this huge link between joy and optimism, which is, you know, why we're talking today. And for us, joy has four pillars. We see this well-being aspect. We see an aspect of belonging. We see an aspect of impact on others and the planet. And we see an aspect of fun. And I think we can all agree that you know, optimists have more fun. So we tick that box. Um, the laughter definitely tells us about that and the smiling and everything. So we have more fun. I think it's also clear from all of the research you've talked about that optimists has a huge impact on well-being, whether that's physical well-being, mental, emotional well-being. It, it's hugely impressive. I'd like to talk, maybe Jenny, you could answer this one. What's your thought on optimism and belonging? What's the link between those two things? Oh, gosh. Wow. That's a, you, you've got a good set of questions there, Andrew. Um, uh, I mean, I'll, look, ultimately, I mean, there's so many bits to this. You know, belonging is so personal. Um, but, you know, like as Victor said before, you know, communities that are spiritual or have like that commonality, mm. ultimately... Mm -hmm. It's it's about that bringing together the like mindedness and and I think it's the um, you know people kind of understanding you and you understanding others that allows you um, you know it kind of builds optimism in everyone so it, it, it doesn't need to be a religious group it certainly doesn't you know like much of the world is not religious and optimistic but it's it's belonging I, I mean I personally think belonging's really really essential um yeah. and it's belonging you know to people with common interests whether it's a you know people who love motorbikes or whether it's an art group or whether it's you know playing bridge or mm. whatever it, it might be there's like you know there's hundreds and hundreds of hobbies and and groups based on different different things um but i think belonging is, is so important you know it's like from every element it's like mm. belonging to a family belonging to a friendship group belonging to you know different clubs and societies and and you know i, I mean it's just so much and it's even you know belonging to your country and you can see that when you've got you know the olympics you know to me i think the olympics is amazing because it it kind of switches gear, you know, like the world's been in, you know, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I have a child who's just come home. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, you know, <laughs> That's okay. That's perfect belonging. <laughs> belonging. You know, the Olympics, the Olympics have, um, you know, bring so much joy to the mm. world 
and so much camaraderie and so much, you know, like, you know, people like me who come from an ethnic background in Australia, I feel so un-Australian, mm. you know. I live in Australia for the minute you travel overseas, I'm so Australian, Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. You know, like we belong, <laughs> we belong. You know, it's it's crazy. So I just, I think, I think belonging and optimism to me very much go together. <laughs> they go hand in hand. Right? They go both ways. Choose. Yeah, they go both ways. I think, you know, having that sense of belonging increases your optimism, but also the other way around, that if you are optimistic, mm-hmm. your chances of having relationships, whether that's healthy relationships, whether that's in the family or with friends, grows exponentially according to your optimism. You know, everybody wants to be around the, the more optimistic people. And obviously our responsibility of parents to ingrain optimism in our children in this world in which we live in um, and the media that we talked about social media you know becomes super important so that's fantastic work that you're doing there probably the most difficult one then is for you Noreen to talk to us about just don't look worried uh, <laughs> is to talk about the connection between optimism and positive impact, optimism, positive impact on other people, optimism, positive impact on the planet. And overall, that means the link between optimism and love. I love that. I love that. And I'm really glad you asked, actually, because I think all the different discussions that we've had around, well, a bit of impact, a bit of analysis, a bit of, um, I don't know, general optimistic talk, I think... I think the one thing that sort of shines for me um, and to answer your question is that when you cannot, when you cannot do anything to fix what's in front of you, there's darkness all around. All you can do is shine light. Mm -hmm. So I like to think that what we do in our space to create impact and to make a difference is just whatever is happening there, let's just keep shining the light, 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 light. And eventually, you know, one outweighs the other. So I think the impact for us is sharing it, spreading it, talking about it, creating more optimists or igniting more optimists that didn't even know they were optimists and just creating a flow and a spread so that there is more of the light and the darkness, more love, more love. I love that. I love that. The way the this movement, this the optimist is is going to move in that positive direction. It's going to cause a chain mm. of events that mm. are going to create this infectious optimism, which will in the end create more love in the world. So, so that's fantastic, mm. Noreen. Thank you for that. My last question, or my second to last question, because I always save a sneaky question to the end. But my last question really told you. Mm. We talked a lot about developing optimism and you guys if anybody are experts in developing optimism so i'd like you all just to name your one favorite tip on how people can develop their own optimism if you had to name just one thing of all the things you know what would that be and whoever wants to i'll start, go first i'll go first go for it i think because i'm a nat- i'm not a natural optimist so i think the switch for me was just finding the kind of optimist that I could identify with and could believe that I was mm-hmm. and then become stronger and stronger. So I think just really find your level. I mean, some people are just very, very happy and that's great. That's their level. Some people are a bit lower, somewhere in between, you know, optimism is for everyone. So just find your level, be comfortable with it and the rest will just happen. Thanks, Nori. Jenny, favorite yeah. tip. Um, Favourite? Well, mine's actually going to take really follow on from Noreen, really. Um, I think, you know, I think the word optimism is challenging for a lot of people because, because they think of the rainbows and lollipops. Whereas I think if you find your level, like Noreen said, and then associate a word with it that resonates with you, it gives you permission to feel optimistic. So, 
you know, Victor has this amazing survey that he's developed um, and mm. as part of it he asks a whole range of questions, you know, are you a cautious optimist? Are you a purposeful optimist? Mm. Realistic. And you actually mm. choose the word that resonates with you. Nice. And I just think that that's so, so powerful because mm. we've seen, you know, people like the most conservative, analytical, detail-oriented people who just like optimism, uh, you know, actually were able to embrace a word that purposeful mm. optimism or cautious mm. optimism or intelligent. I was talking to someone the other day who likes to refer them to themselves <laughs> as an intelligent optimist. Optimist, But, you know, it, it's up to, you know, a realistic optimist, I think, is something that resonates with yeah. a lot of people. It doesn't, infectious optimism, I think, scares a lot of people. Mm. So it's about choosing choosing a word that you put in front of optimist that resonates with you. The power and of language to embed it, embed yeah. it in your life. Yeah. yeah, and I love that research that you guys have been doing. That is so cool, finding out what optimism means to people around the world, and continue, please, uncovering those insights for us. Victor, what's your favourite tip? Number one is just to smile at people. So, um, you know, smiling whether you're on a video conference or walking down the street, and just that little greeting. You know, g'day, hello. You don't need to have a huge conversation with strangers, yeah. but just smiling. And, and the evidence is there that, that it really, it builds community, mm. it builds friendships. And so remembering to smile, although I did a funny one, we did a workshop with a cybersecurity company and their chairman realised he hadn't smiled at the kids for months because so much was going on. Right. And after two days, the kids said, can you stop that Victor Pert and smile? <laughs> the second favourite I've got is the one that Jenny recommended, which is change your greeting. Mm. So instead of hello, how are you, to which most people get a nondescript answer, doesn't matter whether you're in Ireland, Australia, France, mm. instead, hello, oh, what's been the best thing in your day? Or yeah. on a Friday, what's been the best thing in your week? In the week. And then, you know, if you're running a company or you're running an NGO or you're running a family, Nothing better than going round the table mm. and asking what makes you optimistic and making sure you're not just talking about work. Yeah, I did one for a government agency the other day and my favourite answer from a woman, which, which of course the, they wanted me to help get them back to the office, and the woman said, oh, my optimism comes from being in the garden and being with my pets. Yeah. And, of course, she had a rabbit. And I said, oh, does yours come inside too? And she giggled and said, does yours watch TV as well? <laughs> well, of course, you know, you just imagine everyone roared with laughter and every time they're going to see her now, they're going to think about her rabbit right. sitting on her lap and watching, you know, The Bachelor. Bring the <laughs> rabbit into the office. That is a wonderful thing to do. Um, unfortunately, Jenny, Nori, Victor, that's all we've got time for today. We could talk about optimism all day. Before. So thanks a million, obviously, for coming on the show and sharing both your wisdom, but more importantly, I think your passion for optimism. But before we go, and this really is, I promise, my last question, and that's simply to ask each of you, what brings you joy? So maybe Victor can start with that. We're going reverse order. So many things bring me joy, a bit like Jenny. You know, at the moment, the daffodils are blooming in my garden. Mm. Uh, you know, that brings me joy. And, you know, just this last week in between lockdowns, knocking on doors in this little village mm. and asking people what makes you optimistic. And then the next morning, two of the men came to co the, the town coffee. And one of them was recruited to do vegetarian cooking in the local pub. Mm. And the other one joined the Progress Association. So you can imagine my incredible joy from just knocking on doors and asking people what makes them optimistic. I helped them to build an even stronger community. So that brought me huge amounts of joy. That's amazing. Thank you, Victor. Jenny. I mean, I think it's knowing that we're making a positive impact, you know. Mm. Like, I, I think, yeah, I, it just lights me up so much and just knowing that, you know, bringing people together and, you know, them feeling good about themselves. You know, I don't know what's better. I, yeah, it brings me so much joy. Excellent. Wonderful. Thank you. Noreen. Mine's kind of similar. I mean, I, I love it when I can achieve things that are good, you know. Um, mm. I love it when, you know, things come together 
you see a full circle moment, you think, well, that's good. I, you know, I was maybe a part of that, or maybe I started that, or maybe, you know, um, it started something else amazing. Um, so I, I just, I love, I love just the cycle mm. of, of going forward, being optimistic that you can achieve something, achieving it, and it'd be a good thing. I like that. Wow. It gives me joy. And you're achieving it together and you're such a wonderful <laughs> team. It's amazing to, to feel the energy that comes between you. I'm so glad you found each other. And oh, Andrew, you are going to be adopted in. You're, you're part of the family. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. I'm welcome definitely to be part of your optimism family. Thank you so you're, much. You, you belong. You belong. Glad to found my tribe. <laughs> love it. Love it. And, and I hope you... Our listeners feel inspired also and empowered by my chat with Jenny, Noreen and Victor today about the joy superpower of optimism to add some more optimism and joy to your own life as well as to the lives of your loved ones. If so, um, please visit www.projectoptimism.com.au, another mouthful, where you can access the Habits of an Optimist course on Project Optimism, which is a free resource where people can come and learn to be more optimistic. And please also visit www.centerforoptimism.com to learn more about how the how and why of optimism. I think it's a really is a treasure trove of information and inspiration on the power of optimism. Mm -hmm. And why not hop on social media and using the hashtag at joy superpowers, share your own experience of being an optimist and the power of optimism. And if you don't already do so, please follow the Art and Science of Joy on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We'd love to have you come join in the conversation and help us spread the joy. So thank you once again, Victor, Jenny, and Noreen for being on the show today. You've been the most wonderful guests. And thank you, our listeners, for, for listening. And we hope you tune in next week for the next episode of the Art and Science of Joy podcast when we'll be exploring the joy superpower of reading and especially reading to children in the company of Kim Jocelyn Dixon. Thank you. <laughs>